This podcast is brought to you by Cyberattacks can be prevented. Checkpoint, you deserve the best security. We're talking elections, we're talking the global economy with our special guest, economic sage Andrew Ross Sorkin, Elon Musk, Israel and Lebanon and a possible breakthrough deal with them. BB checks into the hospital. It's unholy. I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. And I'm Yuni Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. Unholy Tujus on the News from Kesha podcast is the season to change our name temporarily to holy, I think, dropping anything that sounds sacrilegious. How was the fast, Jonathan? Well, one of the perks of late middle age that I've discovered is that you actually fast quite well. I think it means you've got sort of reserves there to draw on, not to be too unkind to those people of my age and weight, but I think you have reserves to draw upon. And so it's easier. And I see my sons fasting. And actually, one of them now, 21, is sort of, I think he's now over the worst. But the one who's still a teenager, 18, I mean, you know, my heart goes out because it is so hard fasting at that age. You're just the lightheadedness. You just, it's very, it's a struggle. But no, I found it, uh, I, I was well over the fast, to use that uh, Anglo-Jewish formulation. Mm-hmm. What about you, Yoni? Because I know you are unusual among Israelis in that you do Fast. Well, you know, unusual among you know non-orthodox people. Just listening to you, Stutter, trying trying to work your way through that. Uh, Yes, sixty (laughs) percent of Israelis uh, fast on Yom Kippur, which is interesting. Is more than the percentages that would I think define themselves as uh, being religious. Um, You know that in my that's what I meant. I just said it less elegantly. That's exactly. It's usually the other way around. So I'm I'm basking in the novelty of being a little bit more elegant than you. It doesn't happen uh, often. Um, And um, so you know that uh, fifty percent of the parent unit in our household does not fast and 50% does. That's me. And actually, I've always found it uh, quite easy. The not eating was never difficult for me. The not drinking was the sort of tricky part. And I always have this terrible splitting headache in the last three hours of the fast this year being no different. But this year I did work on a new tactic. It took me some time to get to it. But uh, usually, I mean, you know, how do you define modern parenting? It's eating cold pieces of pizza, you know, quietly and very fast over the sink, right? So that would be usually yeah. how I would uh, eat uh, my, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, the Yom Kippur. You would eat it very, very quickly. And this time I was like, I'm going to sit here for an hour. I'm going to eat very, very, very slowly until you have to start fasting. And that was pretty helpful this year. So that's my big tip to you for next year. Uh, but we always talk about this. You mean not to eat in a crazy rush right, and just eat right. yeah, fast-release garbage. Yeah, I think, I think the nutritionist will be with you <laughs> on this one. I think that's true. We had a bit more time this time. Of course, as tradition demands, we talked about old family friends and their methods, those who fast only on two boiled eggs, those who swear by Gatorade. We've had all those conversations. It's now tradition. Right. Almost oh, we should encoded. we should note that last time we talked about Gatorade, and I was so quick to say that there is no Gatorade in Israel, and that makes us so great. I got a note saying there is indeed Gatorade in Israel. Yeah, I, and I bet you its consumer base is orthodox, <laughs> uh, and it and it spikes in late September, early October <laughs> with Yom Kippur. Imagine. I bet. So we trade all those things. That's now part of the Kol Nidre tradition. <laughs> um, but no, I found. Look, I, I I last year I think talked about the fact that I really love the the best thing about it for me is not the uh, no eating, no drinking, although it's probably healthy, but the digital detox is switching off 
you know, no phones, no radio, no TV, no screens, nothing. Uh, again, the bit that my children, particularly one of them, finds hardest. But um, I, I, of course, hasten to add, because people pointed out last time, that, you know, Sabbath-observing Jews do that every single week. Mm. They have this digital detox once a week, the sort of tech tech sh- sh- Sabbath. Mm. They do it, and I should do it, and I don't do that. Um, it would make my life better, I'm sure, if I did. Yeah. Um, but for those 25 hours, I find I actually do kind of get in the zone. And I do spend time in synagogue. And, you know, I've had to explain over the years and did it again this year to non-Jewish colleagues that this is not, for me, described best by the word religious. I don't see it as mm. being a religious thing, which sounds mad to go to a synagogue, a house of worship, and to fast. And yet religious, it doesn't seem the word for me. And it doesn't certainly doesn't depend on a belief in God. It just seems to be something which is tradition. I never feel closer to those family members I've lost than during Yom Kippur. All of those things come together, a feeling of being bound through, you know, time and space to other Jews down the generations and across the world. It really works for me. Mm-hmm. And so I, you know, don't need that other kind of gloss on it. But I can see how in Israel it would be different, actually, mm-hmm. and whether or not somebody needs to fast or whatever. If you're not Orthodox, maybe there's no need in a fully Jewish country. Well, I don't know. I, I really kind of see your point about being bound and sort of to generations and to, you know, I feel this connection that's very important to me, to my family members who used to fast and my grandmother uh, particularly. But also, you know, Israel is, is we should say, is like no other, other country in Yom Kippur. It's an experience that I would say everyone needs to kind of see for once in their life where the whole country kind of shuts down everything, the airports, the restaurants, the shops, the television, you know, everything is is closed down you can the, the streets are empty this is an unwritten law that no one drives in in Yom Kippur it's the custom so you can see kids uh, cy- obviously they are not religious the secular part of Israel cycling through the highways you know it's a unique experience in this country so that i really get the kind of day off thing but the your your 60% figure mm-hmm. which as you said in willing definitely includes secular identifying people mm-hmm who are nevertheless fasting, do you think they're doing it like the way you do it, meaning it's a, something brought down their, their grandparents and they want to for that one day to have a link with their grandparents? Or are they doing it in some kind of zen, cutting off from the digital detox way? What do you think yeah. well, I still is going have remnants, on with your fellow remnants of my uh, religious school in me as well, so that's also part of it. But I think it's it's some sort of something to symbolize your connection. And it's an, such an important day, even if you're completely secular, you completely don't observe uh, Judaism any other day. I think this is still a very important day, even for people who don't keep religion and on other days. That's what I, that's what it sounds like yeah. to me. Yeah. Well, it is now behind us. We have to wait a whole other year for the next one. But um, the rest so of the what, world So we're accumulating keeps... sins now? That's what we're doing because we're post We're now, we're back to piling uh, okay. them up. I mean, but the, but the world does keep turning. <laughs> and I think looking at the calendar, we are now less than a month away, aren't we, from election time in your neck of the woods. Oh, yeah. 26 days to elections. Uh, you oh, you're counting. I, <laughs> I'm counting the hours, <laughs> really. Um, what's interesting this year is, you know, in this country, you always say after the high holidays, you say, chagim. You're, there are all kinds of missions. All, the, the, your to-do list is always, chagim. my to-do list is now coinciding with chagim and after the election. So I know exactly when the elections are, are uh, coming. It doesn't, you, you can really feel that it's 26 days before st- things are still a little bit uh, quiet. It's the last two and a half weeks after the 
the high holidays or you're going to feel the full campaign um, bombardment. But we should say something about Benjamin Netanyahu, the former prime minister, looking to, of course, make a comeback to that role. So first of all, he was admitted to hospital on Wednesday after feeling chest pains while attending synagogue services, was kept overnight for observation. Now back on the campaign trail, you know, having this video uh, put out of him walking and feeling great. Um, And we wish him good health naturally. We should also say another important notch on Netanyahu's calendar, 18 days before Election Day, his book, his biography, autobiography rather, is coming out. It is called Bibi, My Story. We should just pause on that for a second. I mean, you know, he's very busy. But still, I mean, there's something about originality here, not making any political remark, just saying, you know, his book is called My Story. His podcast is called Netanyahu, the podcast. I'm just saying, just be a little more original with the names. Um, but, well, hang on. Is there an autobiography that you have in mind in particular that's called My Story? Is that what you're nodding um, No, to? by the way, I think Clinton's was called My Life. Am I am I mistaken about that? But... Yes, I turned to <laughs> swivel here to How look convenient. at the How and convenient. And I can confirm, Clinton, My Life, Tony Blair, A Journey. Okay. Um, there's always different styles. What is the... Um, Gordon Brown, My Life, Our Times. David Cameron, For the Record. Ah, Ehud Barak, My Country, My Life. So I think my story is exactly squarely in the big, chunky, uh, big man. We should probably add that we'll just wait for BB the Musical. And only then could he compete with Jonathan Friedland for the most busy, the busiest Jewish writer uh, on the face of the planet. Um, but we should say, first of all, <laughs> copies have been circulating. You can't publish anything out of the uh, uh, autobiography until it's uh, out and will coincide not only with Israeli elections, but it will come out in English uh, simultaneously. What I would focus our attention on, Jonathan, when this does officially come out, I think an interesting part of it will be about, if I'm not mistaken, three uh, chapters dedicated to his relationship tumultuous would be an understatement of the century, tumultuous relationship with Barack Obama and certain things that he writes there. I think uh, the Obama people will be very interested in. I will tell you that Amit Segal is uh, reporting in Yediot Achronot that the part he left out of the autobiography is his insinuation that Obama actually threatened him. Uh, but let's say that even without that, it's going to be a very interesting read for sure. It breaks, that, and that story you just told me confirms that it breaks one of the rules of publishing of political memoirs, which Mm. is most publishers will tell you, there is almost no value in a memoir published while the politician is still a serving politician, because then they're going to pull things and hold things back. Mm -hmm. The whole point of the memoir genre of these big politicians is at that stage, by this point, they have nothing to lose. They're not running for election ever again, and therefore they're freer to speak candidly. That is almost the unspoken deal, sometimes explicitly spoken deal, between the ex-politician and the publisher, that they be an ex-politician. So already the fact that the BB memoir is coming out while he's still a serving politician, and not only that, literally while running for election and seeking votes, means one of those audiences is going to be disappointed because if he speaks candidly, that could hurt him politically. If he doesn't speak candidly, if I were his publisher, Mm. I'd be quietly sobbing into my soup because I don't think that's a good deal um, for them. I think they, I'd be very interested to know whether they knew when they bought it that this man was going to seek office again. Surely they yes, would because he is always seeking office. Exactly. I mean, the, the, I think what he's uh, thinking of more is getting votes than selling books. You can do both uh, if it's a very good book. But I think what's uh, obviously on his mind more urgently than others is to actually get votes. Maybe this book, if it sells very well in Israel, can convince some of the people who are unconvinced. Although I would say, and you can see it in the polls that are very static at this point, 
people who love Netanyahu, we've said this many times, will love him. People who don't, don't. It won't change much. Uh, we should say again that the polls are quite static at this point. We see Netanyahu and some of them passing the 61 threshold. Again, these things are very much still in the margin of error. So we're going to have a very, very uh, tense election night broadcast, which I assume you will be watching. Something else that is going to be happening is the fact that this uh, afternoon, right as we speak, the Supreme Court is deciding whether or not to uphold the disqualification of Balad, the uh, Palestinian nationalist Arab-Israeli uh, party that has been disqualified by the Committee for Elections. I assume that they will uh, allow Balad to run. And again, I've said this, but I will say this again, the turnout of the Arab-Israeli vote is the thing that will determine these elections. If they stay at home, Netanyahu uh, is prime minister and the and vice versa. The question of Balad is, again, what we're seeing now is the fact that the Arab parties are running separately. That's never good for them. History shows that when they run united, the uh, Arab voter will come out and vote for them. Large numbers. I remember, the I would remind you, the peak of 15 mandates. But now it looks like it's going to be much less than that. Yeah. I mean, in terms of the Supreme Court decision, I think by the time people hear this, that decision may have mm -hmm. come down. Yeah, And the precedent is that they do repeatedly decide that this elections commission ban them running and then it's overturned by the Supreme Court. Yep. That has been the default. It would tell us something alarming about the Supreme Court if they went the other way. Um, to me, it's a no-brainer because Israel's one of its, if, if not its single strongest talking point always is Israel is the only democracy in the Middle East. You've heard that occasionally, haven't the, you? <laughs> Yeah, a few times. Or Israel is the strongest or most consistent democracy in the Middle East. That means you can't do, hold that position mm -hmm. and be banning political parties, even when they say things you don't like. And there are some pretty extreme parties that are allowed. We have talked about Itamar Ben-Gvir on this podcast, the far-right fascistic party leader. If his party is deemed uh, kosher, then Balad has to be whether you like them or not. I think this point about them running together or not is so interesting because, of course, the symbolic message, the signal that is sent when Arab parties unite is that this is serious. We cannot afford our differences mm -hmm. to damage our collective interests. And therefore, the message, even before you've got to their platform or program, just by coming together, is to signal to the Arab electorate, this matters. By not doing that, in a way, they already are sending a message that, look, this is, we can't even agree on that. So uh, I worry about that. It's in a fascinating state of affairs, just as it was last time, where the coalition hinged on an Arab party, uh, Mansour Abbas, the Ram party. Now, the idea that the actual fate of the election, uh, for the reason you've just said, hinges on Israel's Arab minority, um, underlines this fact about this country, which is it isn't only a Jewish state, despite the rhetoric, there is a substantial one-fifth of the electorate that will hold the future of the country in its hands. Well, uh, let's uh, talk, and this is not completely detached from the uh, election season. Obviously, what has been getting many uh, headlines in the region is the potential for a maritime agreement between Israel and Lebanon. As we speak, uh, Jonathan, Thursday afternoon, Prime Minister Lapid has already said that the changes that Lebanon made in the agreement aren't acceptable. We can't say where this is heading, but I think it's important that we talk about this because this has become a skirmish, and I don't mean a skirmish between Israel and Lebanon, but rather a, an internal skirmish between Israeli politicians. So let's kind of 
explain just briefly? I'm sorry, you yeah, were going to say definitely back up because this is something that people, I think, are, are outside the country are not aware of and yep. it's, it is intriguing. So let's uh, kind of give a very brief explainer here, the story of war, peace, and a potential for billions of dollars. Um, there is a, a long-lasting argument between Israel and Lebanon where the maritime uh, border runs through. This has become obviously a complicated issue or more complicated because uh, in this zone of uh, disagreement or disputed zone, there are two natural gas rigs. One is called Karish and one is called Kana. It should be said, uh, just as we set this conversation, that besides uh, Hassan Nasrallah and maybe some official spokespeople for the Lebanese government, but actually, in essence, no one is disputing that Karish is in the Israeli uh, maritime uh, zone. But the other rig called Kana, depending how you draw the line, if it's the Lebanese version or the Israeli version, this is a question, will always fall partly in Lebanon and partly in Israel. Now, Hassan Israela, who's obviously the leader of the uh, Hezbollah terror organization, has been for months threatening Israel not to begin drilling in Karish and actually even sending some uh, unmanned drones to threaten what is beginning or supposed to be beginning of the the drilling uh, there. And Israel wants its peace and quiet. Quiet, right? Doesn't really mind giving up its rights on the Kana for the Kana uh, rig, as long as it gets some sort of compensation. So there was a real pressure of the Israeli defense echelon to broker some kind of deal between Israel and Lebanon, saying it's very important for Israeli security and efforts to prevent escalation. Now, inside all this, if it wasn't complicated enough, enters the loudest player in the Middle East right now, which is Israeli elections, of course. The deal not yet been made public here in Israel, but Netanyahu already saying that Lapid is capitulating to the Lebanese uh, governments, particularly to Hezbollah. David Friedman, who used to be Trump's ambassador to Israel, adding another uh, sort of a little bit more oil to the fire and saying, again, we would never have agreed to this deal. And it doesn't help much when Nasrallah himself is coming on television saying, you know, whatever, this is a good deal for Lebanon, thus making many Israelis wonder, wait a minute, if my enemy is saying this is a good deal for him, whatever spin it might be, doesn't matter, but it doesn't sound like it's a good deal for me. So it's very hard to hear anything above the din of the elections. I will say that you need to remember that there is more than anything, more than politics, there is a, uh, an issue here of a legal issue, really, because it's a caretaker government trying to make a decision about Israel's maritime borders, borders at large. And it's a question whether this government can actually make that decision. It's up to the attorney general, Gali Baharav Miara, to make that decision if Israel can or cannot. I would just say, even though Lapid really wants an agreement, I don't see Israel arriving at an agreement before November 1st. It's become a hotly disputed uh, political issue in this country, and it's a deep question. If you don't get a deal, will uh, Hezbollah try and uh, retaliate? A lot of questions don't envy the decision that Lapid has to make. Lots to unpack there, I think. I mean, first, the... That was British um, for you talked on too much, right? No, the politics of this are, you know, really obvious that, of course, he can't bring anything now to the table until after the elections. And so I noticed if people have been saying it would, would the cabinet, even though they're meeting, won't make a final decision now, this will be, um, for, and it will have to be brought to the whole parliament. In other words, don't worry, nothing's going to happen unless people agree with it deliberately to take the heat out of it. I, I'm with the, um, the judgment of those Israeli military leaders you were citing at mm-hmm. the start, mm-hmm. which is, It's the same argument I was making when you and I talked about the Iran nuclear deal. I just think a deal is always better than not. And I think the evidence shows that. That bears that out in the Iran nuclear case. Uh, You have a neighbor. It's better to have an agreement and an arrangement. 
uh, it's very noticeable. You mentioned David Friedman. I think Trump's energy envoy, David Schenker, has also been saying, oh, this, we would never have agreed to this. Again, you know, that's classic Trump team uh, doing the same thing again, I think, also playing politics with this. But one way or another, better to be locked into an agreement than not. Uh, but the timing of it is terrible. The timing the of it is, of is very problematic. I would also ask a question here. Again, if Hezbollah is threatening Israel's own oil rig, and the response is that Israel signs a deal, does it not send a message saying, oh, okay, actually, you could have threatened and that you could have done this? So it's a question, again, an, ar- an internal argument inside Israel, which would be a very logical thing to do and a rational argument to make. But we are in an election season. Everything is dyed in that hue when we are 26 days to election. So time for our special guest and talking about a subject which is preying on people's minds. Here in London, where you are, you'll need in Tel Aviv perennially, I think around the world, including the United States, that is the economic landscape and situation. I would call it economic crisis here. Huge anxiety about global surge in inflation and in interest rates. Still problems around the world with uh, the hangover from covid House prices through the roof where you are, they're pretty in flux here. All around, people wondering if we are going into some kind of global economic calamity. And so we thought it would be brilliant to speak with none other than economic sage Andrew Ross Sorkin. Andrew Ross Sorkin is the financial columnist for The New York Times. He's the founder and editor-at-large of Dealbook, the financial news service at The Times, and the co-host of CNBC's uh, Squawk Box and a new show that will come out this fall. He started writing for the New York Times when he was in high school. He wrote his best-selling book, Too Big to Fail, about the 2008 financial crisis. Also the co-creator of the series Billions on Showtime. And last week, he won an Emmy for his interview with Adam Newman of WeWork. And if all that is making you, dear listeners, feel like terrible underachievers, you're not alone. (laughs) Um, Thank you so much for talking to us today, Andrew. Hey, thank you for having me. Listen, I'm, I'm really excited about the Emmy, but my, what caught my eye in your list of long list of awards and prizes is the top movers and shakers of the Jewish community, an, an award you got by the UJA Federation in 2013. Now, that's oh, a prize to take home to mom, I'm just saying. Very impressive. I'm, uh, you know, it was a prize to take home to mom. <laughs> we're, you know, I, we're all still trying to prove something to our mothers. <laughs> Tell that's me about for it. Sure. That's for sure, you know. But of all the prizes, that's the one you value and cherish most, Andrew. Come on, admit it. UJA by a mile. UJA by a mile. You know, there's no, there's no, there's no question. There's no question. We talked about Adam Newman a bit obsessively on this podcast, actually, because of the We Crash TV show. Right. And uh, I mean, just to, because we're going to bound to dive in with our parochial narrow interest, but. The extent to well, one thing we wrestled with at the time was what was peculiarly Israeli or Jewish about that story, if anything, or was it just peculiar to him, or do we think there's some thing, some trait to that's revealing oh, worth drawing out? Do we think it's a Jewish story? I mean, I think that there is something to that, but I also, I fear if I were to say that it was, that I could be critiqued as as um, besmirching our people in some way. Um, I'm, so I'm not, I'm not sure what the right answer is, to be honest with you. Uh, look, Adam Newman had chutzpah, right? This was a guy with chutzpah. And he could sell you, 
I don't, this pen, he could sell you for a million dollars and you'd be very happy to buy it. You really would. So I don't know, but is that, is that a Jewish story? I don't know if that's a Jewish story, but I think it's, it's, it's about somebody who, by the way, who did have something to prove. He had something to prove either to himself or to somebody else or to the world. And I think even to this day, he's still trying to prove it, frankly. Well, we might go back to circle back to talking to him about him a little bit later. But we wanted to try sort of as you're sitting in New York and, and Jonathan is in London, I'm in Tel Aviv to try and make sense of, I don't know, the global economy. And and I kind of want to. Oh, goodness. <laughs> That's hard. That's not easy right now. Exactly. Because I think. That, and you picked the right week for it, too. Exactly. I, I, I was I was wondering uh, about that because, I mean, we are looking at. I, I, not even, I will go into the specific week in a minute, but just like generally where we are, right? I mean, the two largest blocks, economic blocks in the world, the United States and Europe, are having the highest inflation in 40 years. China in lowest growth since the 70s. War in Europe. I mean, how does right. all this not become worse? <laughs> uh, the case for optimism, if that's what you're looking for. You <laughs> I, I'm, de I'm desperately looking for that, yes. <laughs> I, look, the, the truth is that I'm praying that this isn't the sequel to Too Big to Fail, that this isn't the sequel to 2008. And there's lots of little signs that would suggest it isn't, actually, and we can go into those things. At the same time, it's hard, as you just said, not to look at the facts on the ground and say, how does this not end badly? Um, you could argue that it's already pretty bad. And uh, people are feeling the effects of what's happening around the globe in so many different ways. So I don't know. Um, the question is, is it catastrophic? Is it uh, systemic? And is there one of these moments that ripples through the economy and then puts us into some kind of, you know, true, you know, depression? I will say this, you know, for the last, call it 40 years, called since 19, early 1980s, you know, everything has been sort of up and to the right. If you looked at a, a chart of the stock market, if you looked at a chart of the economy, I mean, there were moments, 12 months, 18 months, 24 months, if you closed your eyes or you held your breath and you opened up your eyes two years later, it was still up and to the right. That's what it was. And so I think the real question is whether we are still on that same kind of trajectory, which is to say that, you know, if we have this conversation in 18 months from now, we'll say, oh, okay, looking back, that was something, but now we're, we're off back to the races. Or are we looking at something prolonged? Are we looking at 1970? Because people forget if you had $1,000 in 1970 and you either put that into the stock market or you did something with it, you did not have $1,000 in 1980. It wasn't even that you had the same amount of money, you had less. And that's what concerns me, and that's what worries me most, and all of the sort of ripple effects that that creates. I mean, I, I'm interested to hear your case for optimism, because if anything, the comparison with 2008, I mean, there wasn't then a, a, a kind of epic war going on in Europe. There right. wasn't a global pandemic that the world economy was trying to haul itself out of. And I don't think there was soaring inflation. I mean, my worry had almost been, but I want to hear your optimistic take, but my worry had almost been that actually whatever's coming is worse, which is right. actually, I suppose, goes to your 1970 point, that maybe we need to go earlier. Mm -hmm. But but can I mean, maybe tackle that, but also I'm quite interested at least to give us something to cling on to in terms of optimism. 
Okay, so the good news is that I would argue the banking system, which actually is the infrastructure of the global economy, and I'm not just talking about the United States, but including Europe, we can talk about what's happening this week with Credit Suisse and some of the other banks, but are actually remarkably stronger than they were in 2008. And I don't think people appreciated just how um, on the precipice that entire infrastructure was. Is there risk in the system today? 100%. Are there problems in the system today? 100%. But the idea that the whole thing could fall over, I think, is a little bit tougher to make the argument about. I'll give you the optimistic case, though. The optimistic case is that the reason that we have inflation is a function of supply, a supply problem, both in the context of of actual goods, but also of people and labor. And one of the major constraints beyond this war is China and its lockdown policy around COVID. And that if and when President Xi decides to open up China and change that policy, that there will be an influx of goods and services that will all of a sudden become available that will shift the supply problem. At the same time, the longer term case for optimism is that Western companies across the globe have made the decision and determination that they actually shouldn't even be in China because of the risks of what we just saw and that they're now moving their factories and manufacturing to places like India and other places uh, in Europe and back in the United States and elsewhere, such that we won't have these supply chain change shocks in the future. Having said that, all of those moves are completely and utterly inflationary in the moment, which is to say if Apple decides to move its factories from China to India even, that costs money. If they decide to move some of their factories back to the United States, that not only costs money, but is actually going to therefore be more expensive, at least in the short term, if not the longer term. So those are sort of some of the push-pull issues I, I'm yeah. thinking about. After Jonathan wanted you to be optimistic, I'm wondering what keeps you up at night. I mean, when we think of the 2008 <laughs> crisis, uh, which you wrote about, by the way, extensively, and, and, you know, you look at these, even today, it's unbelievable, and you look at those headlines, just like 14 years ago, right? Right. Uh, I just went through this today, and it was like, Lehman files for bankruptcy, and Merrill is so, like, it's these things you can't even believe. What we didn't know then, there were these dark corners of the financial system that were overlooked, right? And the, the whole thing crashed. I mean, is there something that we're not seeing now? What, what concerns you when you're looking at the whole, the whole board? Look, the largest thing is right in front of us, actually, which is back in 2008, we talked about this phrase, too big to fail, but we used it in the context of banks, of banking institutions. Today, we don't talk about banks being too big to fail. We talk about municipalities being too big to fail. We talk about cities being too big to fail. We talked about nation states being too big to fail. And if you believe that every financial crisis at some level is ultimately a function of only one thing, which is debt, too much credit in the system, too much leverage in the system, by default, we have multitudes more of it today than we ever did. And so whether it's in the banks or whether it's in the central banks is almost maybe beside the point, because at some moment, there could be one of these moments where people decide that somebody else is not good for the money, right? And the second, this, this, it's a confidence game. This entire 
economy, global economy is a confidence game. We're all drinking from the same water fountain. But the second that I say I'm not drinking from that fountain, or the second I say that you're not good for that money, and then somebody says, well, if that person's not good for the money, then the person behind that person's not good for the money. That's when the whole thing breaks down. And so those are the things that I, you know, what keeps me up at night is thinking just about how all of that gets undone. Now, central banks have one thing that most banks or other financial institutions don't have, which is the ability to print, uh, print lots of money. But what does that ultimately do? It devalues money, uh, which is the other outcome. And that's in certain ways more insidious Mm -hmm. because people don't really see what's happening. But boy, can you feel it oftentimes. This thing about confidence, I'm not only saying this because I happen to be sitting in a country where the government managed to (laughs) trash what confidence the world's markets had in it, namely Britain. To me, it's a fascinating thing because it's somebody was saying this week about the British government, which just messed this whole thing up royally with a financial statement, which just spooked all the markets, the currency plunged, etc. Just taking Britain as an example, but for, for, you know, and the global lessons it might teach. Right. What Somebody remarked this week that, you know, credibility or confidence is like virginity. Once you've lost it, you, you never get it back. I mean, whether you buy that or not, what are the mechanisms, if this is a confidence game globally, how do you make people confident again once they have lost their nerve? Oh, goodness. A, I think it's very hard to get that confidence back in the immediate term. That's actually the scariest part about all of this. I think once people have lost that confidence, sort of turning that story in a week, two weeks, three weeks, a month, sometimes a year can be very, very, very difficult. At the same time, I would argue to you that, bizarrely enough, the financial system has the shortest of all memories because there are moments in time where people do things that are completely outrageous and then two or three or four years later, we're doing all the same things again. So it's a little bit of this sort of back and forth ping pong situation of sort of where the confidence lies and how long the memories are. How do you get the confidence back? you have to prove to people somehow, again, that you're good for the money, that it, that there's a path. You know, sometimes people say, oh, look at how much debt, for example, the U.S. government has. They'll never be able to pay that back. How could they ever pay that back? It's just impossible. And yes, it is 100% true that if the U.S. government was called tomorrow and said, you need to pay all of it back tomorrow, they couldn't. They couldn't. So it's not that you actually have to be able to pay it back tomorrow or 10 years from now, or 20 years from now. But it has to be that people have the confidence and the belief that you have a plan that would somehow get you there. But that's a longer term plan than what it means to flip things around. And I think the UK, unfortunately, is going to struggle for at least the immediate term in terms of what that confidence looks like. You've lived in, in London, by the way. Were you kind of surprised by how fast everything, you know, turned into this hot mess? No offense, Jonathan, but it kind of did. <laughs> uh, was I surprised? You know, I feel like it's funny. I live in New York and everything in New York, everyone says, oh, it's such a supercharged place and everything happens second by second. I've always actually thought that in London, politically, things happen actually with such speed and rapidity and that the whole sort of culture is almost around the politics and that things happen in ways that frankly, don't happen in lots of other countries. So no, I wouldn't say I was surprised in that regard. I was I was a little bit surprised at just what I thought were basic mistakes that were being made, whether it be around tax policy or other things that would clearly hurt the pound, that 
to me seemed relatively irrational in terms of ideas that I thought if you had some people who were sort of half sentient around you that you might not make. Yeah, no, no. I mean, the same reaction here. People just could not quite believe, you know, adults had actually <laughs> done this. Um, and, and you know, the markets gave their verdict. But I mean, we'll move right. on from Britain in a second, but partly because, you know, I myself am losing sleep. Just if you were sitting with the sentient members of this UK government, yes. and there are perhaps one or two of them, what would you be telling them to do? If you, you know, you've got back, an envelope and you had the back of it and you had a pencil, what would you say are the three things they've got to do to get out of this hole? Their problems are not that different than everybody else's. They have to crack the back of inflation. The problem is how do you crack the back of inflation at a time when everybody else isn't or has also struggled to do the same? I think part of it is a labor issue. Uh, how do you actually get people uh, both back to work but also working at prices? I mean, it's funny. You want labor to make more money, but you don't want labor to make more money and then it to then their cost to, to be outpaced, which is what's happening. I, I wish I had some brilliant answer for you. And the truth is, I, I don't. I, th I th think that what's going to ultimately happen is that all of these governments, including the UK, are probably going to tip themselves into some form of a recession. And that that may buy, it's, it's a very perverse thing to say, it may buy these central banks time and these governments time, a little bit of time to figure out some of the, the, the things that they should or should not be doing fiscally in terms of where they can invest money and trying to get some of their budgetary issues uh, back you know, we're talking about uh, governments being tipped into recession, and I, you kind of look at the, and this is, of course, the political situation in the world is tied directly to all this. And you look at this kind of depressing macro picture of the world and this rising populism in the U.S., essentially also, I think we could say in the U.K., definitely Italy. I don't want to frame it this way, but I kind of feel like I have no choice. Does democracy, the free market, do they still go hand in hand with these ideas, like the the best combination to lead to prosperity and stability and, and democracy and, you know, protection of minorities? Are we still believing in that idea that it's all coming, that it could all walk hand in hand, even in the shadow of this very, very dire economic situation? So I believe in capitalism. I genuinely do. I think that if you look over history, and you look at just how many people have been brought out of poverty, it's almost a cliche. It is a function of capitalism, even places like China, which you may not think of as truly capitalistic, but I think that's what's led them, led them out. I think obviously there are terrible imbalances within the system. And part of it is that some of these, both governments and, and corporations have corrupted each other, in fact. And that's what's, what's to some degree led to all, all sorts of problems. Look, I go back, frankly, to 2008 um, as a sort of moment that I think led to this remarkable distrust that the public has about experts, about capitalism, about systems, um, about science. I, I think all of these ideas sort of um, were put into jeopardy to some degree because so many people looked around and said, you know, I thought you guys had it and you didn't. And why was I trusting you? And in some ways, you you saw that. I mean, you could argue that led to the rise of so much of the populism that we saw in the last decade. You could say that led to some of the science denial during the mm -hmm. pandemic. But then you could look at some of the issues even around science during the pandemic, which uh, now has raised all sorts of new questions about the veracity of, of what works and what doesn't and all of that. So, Oh, I, I wish I could say we're not in a pickle, but we're in a pickle. 
Can I not? And it's not the the mention of pickles that makes me ask a Jewish question. Yes, but you know, you're, I mean, you're pickles are not Jewish, are they? I mean, I guess <laughs> a, a a dill pickle. Does it is a dill pickle? What? Tell you tell me. I, I think I may pickle be, is Jewish, but I we can. Pickle is Jewish. Is, is pickle Jewish? So. It's got a K in it, so it immediately becomes Jewish. But I don't want to sure divert myself. That? That's a little bit like the Adam Sandler uh, song, the Hanukkah you know. song. Who's Jewish and who's not Jewish? Yeah, yeah I, I'm, I'm, I'm calling it for pickle is Jewish. But anyway, the thing that crossed my mind was at Zabar's in New York, they sell pickles. So I'm going with it. Go with it. Go with it. The whether or not you, as a brilliant economist, think of see these. Oh, I'm not a real economist. I just play one on TV. <laughs> yeah. um, whether you look at these developments and think think of them and analyze them in those terms, or and I'm projecting a little bit, the, yeah. where there's a Jewish perspective which says, you know what, when things get really bad economically, when there's this level of instability and turmoil in markets and inflation is soaring, that kind of never works out well for us. And not just for us, but sort of history. And whether or not you have that lens when you look at these developments, because I noticed somebody immediately sent me a little, somebody from abroad sent me a little joke about Britain inflation and said, right. you know, you're getting the wheelbarrow ready to take your banknotes, you know, little Weimar reference. It's sort of there always in the back that this kind of economic circumstances leads to big political problems. And I wonder whether you, A, you think that, and B, whether you think that's kind of a Jewish thing to see the world that way. I don't know about the first part. I think the second part is 1,000% true, which is to say, Again, I don't want to project on all of the Jewish people as a Jew myself, but we tend as a people to be a bit more anxious, uh, I think probably rightly than others. And so when, when we get into these pickles, as you have just attested, are, are Jewish food, um, I think we get into these situations where, where, where there's an anxiety that surrounds it. Now, I would argue to you that that's actually healthy. Again, now I'm projecting onto the uh, an, an entire religious religion, but I, I often think that actually uh, being a little nervous and being anxious in certain cases can be helpful. By the way, can be completely unhelpful and unhealthy. In these instances, I think on the whole, actually thinking through the permutations, the sort of logic train of what could happen is very, very valuable. See, that's why I like uh, this podcast, because I wanted to ask that question, and I never would, and he would. So that <laughs> <laughs> I go there. He's go there. I'm the parochial He's go there. Jew. Um, I, so I, I want to Do you feel that way? Do you feel like we're, uh, we we're all? I think we all, I, I think, I don't know, I have that feeling as well, like completely, that there's an, the minute there's this kind of level of instability in the world, that's, you know, generally bad for the Jews. Like that is the... Maybe it's a very and not just for the Jews. I mean, I think it's the the sense the feel that that this is bad for the you know political climate and turmoil is never healthy. I, I'll give you an example. There are people, for example, you know, I write for the Guardian newspaper. There are people on the left, not writers for the Guardian, but people in the left world who see this sort of instability and good. This is healthy. This means turns people towards revolution and change. This is a good thing, and I just don't think that's that. The Jewish perspective thinks not so fast. You know this kind of instability is a bad thing. And I think that's partly, you know, for our, for our historical reasons. But I was interested to know if you're no, bringing I, that No, I agree with you in that perspective from too. a historical perspective, I don't think that we like instability just as a, as a people. Having said that, though, and this would be the case for optimism, if you go back and look at so many of these dips or periods are in our economy where things faltered, that's actually where lots of great innovation and other things have developed over time. Mm -hmm. 
um, and that people have done remarkable things under enormous amounts of pressure. And it was that pressure that created the greatness. Um, I don't know, uh, both of you are journalists. I'm curious, do you think you do your best work under, under deadline with lots of pressure and anxiety all over you or when you have lots of time? I know for me, if you give me lots of time, I procrastinate the time away. <laughs> Let's say option A sounded more familiar, Andrew, I can just say. <laughs> I, um, but I have to be, I'm going to have to be the Israeli Jew in the conversation again and point us it. to the fact that, uh, we, you know, we're sitting here on Monday, the central bank in Israel raised interest rates again today following suit uh, after the United States. And obviously the inflation here is not at the rate that the UK is suffering from or, or the United States. But on the other hand, I mean, Israel is such an anomaly because prices were so high to begin with. And, you know, I've, the economist crowned Tel Aviv as the most expensive city in the world this year, um, mm -hmm. which is such an anomaly to me because we're sitting on a metaphorically or not metaphorically a volcano and yet things here are still so expensive you know it's just a very strange i think a very strange financial can you tell bubble. me how you live i, <laughs> I think about that all the time. No, seriously every time i i've made a trip to israel i i mean i think that by the way when i'm in london too i think how how is this even possible <laughs> right um how is it sustainable i don't have a good answer for you it's it's not really i mean in the sense that it is very 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 expensive to live in israel uh, to begin with, more than many other places, uh, salaries obviously not as high. The cost of living is is insane, and and not only cost the cost cost of housing is insane. Uh, so right. for how long is this sustainable? I I don't know. I hoped you would have an answer, but uh, but it's been that way for most of your lifetime, I imagine. Well, it's it's getting worse. Uh, it, right. it, you know, if you used to need I don't know 160 average salaries to buy an apartment, which is crazy in itself, it's now going to be in the high 200s. Um, right. you know, so that is, it is, it is a pretty insane, uh, situation. And, and, but Jonathan, and, I mean, I lived in London 20 years ago and I remember thinking it was insanely expensive then. I was just back, uh, two or three months ago when it was worse. Yeah. No, I mean, the insane thing here is this is a country that doesn't really pay its way in the world, that people live these life, lives and lifestyles without the country itself making enough things that people want to buy. And so we're sort of living on the kindness of strangers a bit that, you know, and that's what the meaning people who lend us money, the market. Well, so this gets to money. a very interesting to me, philosophical though idea, which is that so much of the world is living beyond its means, Correct. but has no I mean. idea that it is living beyond its means. And it creates all sorts of different issues around entitlement and what our expectations are, because you know, it, it was very interesting. You had just asked, you need about um, about this idea of capitalism. Is capitalism working or is capitalism not working? Mm -hmm. Well, yes, capitalism's not working. If we all live beyond our means and have a sense that we absolutely are entitled to live beyond our means, yes, then the system does not work. Mm -hmm. um, but interestingly, as we have done better and better and better, our expectations have risen as they would almost ordinarily. And so... How do you change that dynamic? It's very hard to put the toothpaste back in the tube and tell tell somebody that actually no no no, that we've all been living you know in Alice in Wonderland. This is all some kind of fairy tale. No, I think people expected a sort of American level of lifestyle, and they couldn't afford it. So credit came in to fill mm -hmm. the gap, and so and Britain is a real example of that. The Israel thing is even crazier in a way. I, I wanted to just ask this as about because Israel is such an extreme case of it with 
the huge fortunes that have happened, right. been made in Israel with tech and billionaires and so on. But America as well. With Same thing. Billionaires. In many ways. Almost from your perspective, rather than just, as somebody, again, who knows the economics of this, what does it do to a society when you have those huge d- disparities of wealth? People, I think, struggle for a language to describe that because it's you resort to a moral language. Why is it a problem for some people in society to have these extraordinary fortunes and for everyone else to be struggling to get by? What does it do? Oh, goodness. Can I get on the couch for a second? Because I... I <laughs> No, no. I, I think about this all the time, and I ha- I'm, I'm of two views. I, one view is that inequality, it's the cliche, it's the cliche, it's what you read every day. Inequality is terrible. The idea that, that one person or 50 people, you know, control the world or, or control, you know, such large pieces of the economy seems absolutely crazy and absurd and outrageous. So on one end, I'm always trying to think of how do you end that inequality? How, how terrible is that inequality? And we need to fix that. On the other end, I say to myself, okay, is the goal to end the inequality between the top and the bottom, is that, is that the goal? Or is the goal to somehow make those that are at the bottom or even at the middle higher up the rung? And I think the truth is we actually have, demonstrably have on the bottom piece of this story, for the most part. I mean, I think the living standard of somebody who was at the bottom or especially in the middle 40, 50, 60 years ago is in a completely different place than they would be now. They, they would have a telephone. Uh, they would have all, all sorts of things that, that, that people wouldn't have then. And so then the question is, what are we talking about are we on the top side? And how important is, is it for us to, is it, do we want to tamp down the top? Do we want to raise the bottom? Do we need to do both? Is this about sort of seeing what's, is this an envy story? I, th- I think there's some element to that, right? I look at, you know, I remember I was at the airport recently and I looked at these whole whole, uh, whole cadre of private planes and there I was in the middle seat uh, on Delta. And I thought to myself, oh, look, you know, look over there. Um, well, at least the flight wasn't canceled. What, right. But no, but I, anyway, these are the things I think about. And I, so I don't, I wish I could give you a very straight answer and say this is how it's supposed to be and this is what it should be, but I think it's, I think it's complicated and it's um, it's unsatisfying in, in that way. I, I want to can, can we as we kind of wrap up our conversation? Can I go back to Jewish mother conversation just for a moment? <laughs> because... Oh, absolutely. She'll she'll <laughs> you... love any conversation about that. <laughs> because you were talking about trying to you know still prove yourself to your mother and i would assume oh my goodness with such yes. with such a successful career uh, like the one you have and so, you know really a renaissance man managing to write the books and oh, the columns no. and television and writing for television you know and she's a playwright oh. and your father's a lawyer i mean it's yeah. not that you're sitting in the, the 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 shabbat dinners and they complain that you're not a doctor right i would assume that they're very proud <laughs> Oh, I think they're very proud. Maybe projecting for my Shabbat dinner. I'm I hope, no, I hope that they are. And, um, you know, we'll be breaking the fast with them. I don't know. I, I'm somebody who always has lived this sort of imposter syndrome my whole life. And so I, I'm always sort of feeling whatever I'm doing professionally, I, I still don't think I've figured it out. I imagine everybody feels this way. Maybe, maybe not, but I do. So I, Yes, I think that they are proud, but I also think that actually, in many ways, 
this idea of proving some, something to my mother, I think, came from my childhood. And I was always trying to prove something to her. And I, st I still am. I really still am. I know that's, uh, it may sound absurd, but it's true. Andrew, thank you so much for talking to us. It was such a great conversation. Um, can I just say this has been a ball? Thank you so, so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. Sometimes, you know, I feel guilty a little bit, Your need. Maybe it's the season, but I think we have these absolutely world-class intellects and brains on this podcast. And one way or another, I think it's usually me, I drag them back to the, so tell me about being Jewish, is <laughs> well, what I so I think often it's ask. Our, it's our unique selling point. I don't, I, I, I like so. when you do it. I don't, I listen, I've listened to a few, uh, let's say more than a few of Andrew's conversations. I've never heard him talk about this aspect. So I think it's very interesting, even to our non-Jewish listeners. Um, and of course, now that we've determined the pickles are indeed Jewish, I think that is the most important thing about Sorry, the conversation. Sorry, what do you mean determined? This was never even in dispute. <laughs> Okay. Okay. Sending you back to the Lenny Bruce skit in which he says that no, he doesn't talk about pickles, but he says fruit salad is Jewish. I think that's the most important thing, really. No, I know. Jello I just couldn't believe it was a point of deep theological controversy. But, Our only point of collision, I think, with Andrew or Sorkin. But um, we were really, I mean, we just if we're talking about less important things than pickles, but like the world economy for a minute, I mean, I think we were desperately trying to make him say something optimistic. I don't know if we succeeded, really. I'm more optimistic about his prospects of impressing his Jewish mother than I am about the world economy. But I think it was an, a really interesting conversation. To me, that part about how everything is built on trust and the one minute that once one person says, I'm not going to drink from this fountain, the whole thing can collapse just because it's that kind of structure. That was a metaphor that kind of uh, resonated with me. And the number, the fact that stuck with me was this thing about 1970. You always comfort yourself that, oh, things will come out in the wash. They will settle up after a year or two. No, in the, you know, a dollar was worth more in 1970 than it was in 1980. Mm -hmm. You genuinely did get poorer over a 10-year period. That figure and that stat fact has been rattling around in my head. But no, a, a brilliant um, guest. We are very grateful to Andrew Ross Sorkin for joining the Unholy Club. There's now a few of these great world-class public intellectuals mm -hmm. who've had me ask about their Jewish lives. <laughs> um, and so he joins that club. We should um, hand out some uh, awards. Um, I thought I would go in with uh, Sheer Chutzpah of a man who really could have got this prize many times before. I wonder if we have given it to him before. I know you'll tell me. But uh, billionaire Elon Musk decided to... The, conduct his own little bit of public diplomacy, Twitter diplomacy. Of course, he is bidding and on course to be Twitter's new owner. But Elon Musk decided it would be sensible to go on Twitter and put to a poll his, what he claimed was the likely outcome and what you suspected was his favoured outcome for the war in Ukraine, suggesting that, for example, the Ukrainian territory of Crimea should be permanently given to Russia and guaranteed a permanent water supply that those four regions of eastern Ukraine that Russia has annexed, there should be new referendums there rather than just being accepted to be part of Ukraine, and that Ukraine should be required to remain neutral, which of course would accomplish a, a strategic goal of Moscow's barring Ukraine from joining NATO. You know, what business is, is it of his? But doing it in an opinion poll really felt like a stunt to help Vladimir Putin. It's not just me saying this. The uh, envoys and diplomats of Ukraine itself, Ukraine's outgoing ambassador to Germany, he said on Twitter, 
F off is my very diplomatic reply to you. The only outcome is that now no Ukrainian will ever buy your effing Tesla crap. So good luck to you. And that is a change for the Ukrainians because he was quite popular, Mm -hmm. um, Elon Musk, before because he had um, allowed his Starlink satellite communication system or given uh, his Starlink kit to the Ukrainian military and to Ukrainians to enable them to continue using the internet after the Russian invasion. So he had been a bit of a folk hero there, now very much a folk zero after the sheer chutzpah of deciding to hand a propaganda gift to Vladimir Putin via his chosen medium of Twitter. Yeah, always be suspicious of people trying to draft a peace agreement on Twitter, I think. But by the way, he's yeah. a novelty on our chutzpah. Surprisingly, he's the first really? new entry in our chutzpah award. Um, okay, so... Yeah. Um, you're the keeper of the... Tw- you're the keeper of the unholy archive. <laughs> so if you say that, then we know that is... Want to quiz me on what happened in episode 34? Um, you know you can. You know you can. Uh, <laughs> I know I can. Oddly, I don't, but I know I could. Um, so I think it's uh, my turn to do the Mensch Awards. And I think we have no disagreement here that the brave women of Iran deserve the Mensch award uh, of uh, this uh, week. What we're seeing in Iran is the anti-hijab movement. Uh, We have seen protests over the years, but I think analysts agree that this is something different. Uh, Many analysts, including here in Israel, say it it presents the most prominent threat to the Ayatollahs since the revolution. Still doesn't mean that the regime is collapsing, but that something is happening. We see protests specifically against the morality police and against the terror that they're objecting, uh, particularly women, to really just all around uh, uh, Iran. It started in Kurdistan, but it moved over to Tehran, and it's fast and furious it's everywhere. Women are not afraid, it's particularly women at the forefront of this um, movement, not afraid of standing up to authorities, and on the other hand, authorities cracking down quite harshly. There are more than 100 dead, but really, we're seeing women fighting back. Of course, the beating of Mahsa Amini is the uh, trigger to this, uh, the young woman who was uh, beaten to death because a part of her hair was uh, sticking out of the hijab, but really an essentially a, a protest against uh, what we've been seeing in the past year since Raisi became president and clamping down on regulations and rules regarding the morality police. So this is the women of Iran uh, really fighting back. And it's very, very interesting, this grassroots uh, protest, where it's going to lead. As I said, many analysts, including in Israel, think that this is a very dangerous moment for the Ayatollahs. Again, not meaning... I don't mean that the uh, regime is going to collapse. I think it's a very, very dangerous moment for them. I mean, absolutely deserving winner, uh, heroic what those women are doing and the bravery that you can see in those videos is really stirring, actually, and inspiring to see. But yes, the question you rightly don't answer but raise Mm -hmm. is the really interesting one. Is this the beginning of some kind of unraveling and an end? Uh, I've seen comparisons with... Berlin Wall. I've seen comparisons which are probably more apt with the very first stirrings of the solidarity movement in communist-run Poland in the last gasp of the 1970s. You know, there were some who said this could be the beginning of, and it took 10 years Mm. to come, the beginning of the end of communist rule in that case. Um, But things move faster now, and it begins with this kind of human courage and I think, you know, women and people all over the world will be inspired by what these very, very brave individuals are doing. And it does seem as if it is becoming a movement. Um, So worthy winners of our Mensch of the Week Award. Um, I think we want to say if you are a regular listener, please do spread the word by whatever your chosen platform is. You could 
be like Elon Musk and do a Twitter poll. Is unholy great or is it just unmissably brilliant? Do that. You can just post messages on Facebook, Instagram. We're there, Unholy Podcast, and generally spread the word low-tech, high-tech, whichever way you like. And we will uh, say our thank yous to Gaia Glazer, Omer Prima, Tzorom Atiken, Yair Bashan. Uh, Jonathan, almost Chag Sukkot Sameach to you. Almost. Doesn't stop, does it? We're after you get one out of <laughs> the way and then another one comes. Uh, thank you. Chag Sukkot Sameach. Lach and Lachem to everyone listening. And... Um, We will see you next week. We will. This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint. You deserve the best security.